Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The sudden collapse of Archegos Capital Management last year sent shockwaves through global finance, exposed gaping holes in how major banks manage their risks and how regulators oversee Wall Street. Manhattan U.S. Attorney Damian Williams says it was a massive fraud, a vast criminal scheme to mislead banks and manipulate the markets that nearly jeopardized our financial system. The lies fed the inflation and the inflation fed more lies. Round and round it went. But last year, the music stopped. The bubble burst, the prices dropped, and when they did, billions of dollars nearly evaporated overnight. Archegos founder James Wong and its chief financial officer Patrick Halligan were arrested on Wednesday on securities fraud, racketeering, and market manipulation charges. Joining me is James Park, a professor at UCLA Law School. This is being called one of the highest-profile white-collar prosecutions in recent memory. Do you agree? I agree, simply because of the size of the alleged market manipulation, something that I think the extent of which, in my mind, seemed unimaginable until it actually happened. And it's also a very ambitious case, in my view, Market manipulation is very difficult to identify and define. And so the case, in my view, is forging ahead in new areas and could not only affect the individual defendants in the case, but it could also create law and expectations for the way that trading happens on Wall Street. The U.S. attorney said the scheme was historic in scope. Can you explain what the scheme was? The theory was that he was manipulating the prices of stock that he was invested in very simply by buying huge amounts of stock using his own funds and also critically borrowed money, money that was borrowed from various investment banks. And simply by buying and buying, he was trying to drive the price up. He was buying at certain times, the end of the trading day, when those trades would have a larger impact. They were engaging in transactions before the market opened, when there's not a high volume of transactions. And so in some ways, the basic scheme is actually fairly simple. It's simply supply and demand. You know, the more you demand of a particular thing, the higher the price goes. And the alleged intent was to increase the price of his holdings. 
a second element of the scheme was that in order to get the funds from the investment bank, he lied about the condition of his firm. He didn't disclose the extent to which he had very large, concentrated, risky positions in these stocks. I get what his lying to the banks was about, but why is it illegal to buy a lot of stock, to buy it at different times of the day? I mean, what's illegal about that? It's a very high standard to meet you, and I think you've really hit the nail on the head. The standard for market manipulation, which was discussed in the criminal context about 30 years ago in a case the Second Circuit decided called the Moharan case, basically says the sole purpose of the stock purchases has to be manipulation, that you are buying the stock prices solely to artificially inflate the stock price. And it's really a question of intent. What was the intent of Archegos, uh, Huang, and the other participants in the scheme? Was the sole intent to artificially inflate the stock price? And I think that's a very tough standard to meet, although I think it's very fact-specific. And the key thing the government has going for it may be the sheer size of the transaction and what may be a complete lack of any connection to any economic fundamentals or, you know, analysis that the stock was underpriced and so further investment was warranted. But it is going to be a challenging legal theory to win at trial and also who knows what the Second Circuit will do if the case goes up on appeal. On the other hand, this is an area of law that has not been developed all that much, and sometimes courts will adjust the law to some extent based upon a particularly egregious set of facts, and so I would not rule out the viability of this legal theory. Tell us how the law in the Second Circuit might be helpful to the defense here. I think the Moharan case, to me, is the case that the defense will most likely cite. And in that case, the Second Circuit implied that the standard for manipulation was that it has to be the sole purpose of the stock prices, that the manipulation has to be the only reason you're making these purchases. And I imagine the defense will argue that, you know, they bought the stock because they believed it was undervalued. They believed that the stock was worth more and that they were aggressively entering into this position because they thought that this would be a good investment and that they weren't artificially, you know, just trying to increase the price for some arbitrary reason. Another piece of language in that decision that I think will be helpful to the defense is that if you lose money on a manipulative scheme, that that can be a fact that weighs against the finding of manipulation. And that could be something that the defendants would argue would cut against the idea that this was a successful manipulation. You said earlier that this was almost unimaginable to you. Explain why. I just want to highlight this is a really remarkable case. Typically, when we think of security fraud, we think about a corporation issuing false statements to inflate the stock price. You know, think about Enron 20 years ago issuing false financial statements. But now you have investors with family offices that are so large and are able to get so much financing through these derivatives, these total return swaps, where they're essentially not even buying the stock, but they're entering into a contract with the bank where the bank pays 
the investor if the stock price goes up, the investor pays the bank if the stock price goes down. And, you know, to see a public company stock price manipulated by a large investor like this is really, really remarkable in the history of securities fraud and securities fraud regulation. Also very interesting comparison with the GameStop situation about a year ago, where you have a whole bunch of small retail investors banding together, inflating the stock price of GameStop and AMC, coordinating through chat boards. And this is a little bit more of an elite form of that sort of market activity. And I think that it's very interesting to see that even public company stocks can be manipulated in this way. The conventional understanding before was that, you know, with a big public company stock, there's just too many shares out there for anyone to effectively manipulate the stock prices of those companies. But this shows that that's no longer the case. And I think that the SEC will have to do some thinking about how we can best prevent these sorts of shocks to the system from happening in the future. Now, on the other hand, there is some language in Mulheron that may be somewhat useful to the government's case. And, you know, the, the sole purpose standard was used in deciding that case. But there is some language in the Second Circuit indicating that it's not 100 percent clear that that is the standard for determining whether there's manipulation. Um, and so we'll have to see how that law is interpreted by the judges in this case. The collapse put a spotlight on large family offices. What do you think should be done about large family offices? Should they be held to different standards than they are now? I think some level of disclosure would be prudent for family offices over a certain size. And I think the assumption behind the current framework, which exempts family offices from a disclosure to the SEC, is the assumption that they're not going to be able to impact market stability. They're not a systemic risk to the market. Uh, But this shows that they can be large enough so that they can have such an impact. And the SEC has been moving in the direction of requiring disclosure of investment companies, investment advisors, in order to monitor better their potential impact on markets. And and to the extent that hedge funds and private equity funds are going to be required to disclose information about their losses to the SEC so that the SEC can evaluate market risk, I don't see any reason why family offices of a certain size should be exempt from those requirements. The U.S. Attorney's Office is now gathering evidence around whether or not banks engaged in illegal activities here, particularly whether some market participants were getting tipped off ahead of time. Would that also be a really difficult case to prove? I think if they find the evidence and, you know, I think the question to some extent is to what extent will some of these defendants agree to cooperate? That is something that could come into the equation. And, you know, I think they'll have access to their records, their documents, so they'll be able to look at various communications. But I would suspect to the extent there were such agreements, They may not be memorialized. I think that some of these participants are becoming more savvy about the potential for government regulation. So I think it will be difficult. But if they find the evidence, I think that very clearly would be illegal. And certainly this could result in more cases. You said earlier that this was almost unimaginable to you. Explain why. I just want to highlight this is a really remarkable case. Typically, when we think of security fraud, we think about a corporation 
issuing false statements to inflate the stock price. You know, think about Enron 20 years ago, issuing false financial statements. But now you have investors with family offices that are so large and are able to get so much financing through these derivatives, these total return swaps, where they're essentially not even buying the stock, but they're entering into a contract with the bank where the bank pays the investor if the stock price goes up, the investor pays the bank if the stock price goes down. And, you know, to see a public company stock price manipulated by a large investor like this is really, really remarkable in the history of securities fraud and securities fraud regulation. Also, very interesting comparison with the GameStop situation about a year ago, where you have a whole bunch of small retail investors banding together, inflating the stock price of GameStop and AMC, coordinating through chat boards. And this is a little bit more of an elite form of that sort of market activity. And I think that it's very interesting to see that even public company stocks can be manipulated in this way. The conventional understanding before was that, you know, with a big public company stock, there's just too many shares out there for anyone to effectively manipulate the stock prices of those companies. But this shows that that's no longer the case. And I think that the SEC will have to do some thinking about how we can best prevent these sorts of shocks to the system from happening in the future. Thanks, James. That's Professor James Park of UCLA Law School. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, 
It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. A divided Supreme Court allowed a selective Northern Virginia public high school to keep using an admissions policy adopted to add more racial and socioeconomic diversity to its student body. The justices refused to block Thomas Jefferson High School's year-old policy, which a community group challenged as discriminating against Asian-American applicants. But the Fairfax County School Board said it's using race-neutral methods to foster diversity, something the Supreme Court had previously indicated was constitutional. A federal judge had blocked the policy for the current admissions cycle, but a federal appeals court put that ruling on hold by a two-to-one vote. The case tests what steps schools and universities can take to ensure racial diversity in their classrooms. Joining me is Audrey Anderson, who heads the higher education practice at Bass, Barry & Sims. The school board says it's using race-neutral methods to foster diversity. Can you describe those methods, Audrey? So the way they are choosing students for this school is completely race-neutral. When the applicants are being considered, there is no indication of their name, their gender, or their race on the applications. Everybody is given an application number, and that's how they are considered. So then they also take a certain percentage from every middle school that is within the area that this high school covers. But that's all race neutral as well. So the way they're choosing students is completely race neutral. The reason why um, the lower court, the district court here, found that that on its face race neutral admissions program violated the Constitution was because the court found that compared to the admissions program they had before, their new admissions program had a disparate impact on Asian American students. And the court also found that the school board's whole process was, the word he used was, infected with racial balancing, which the district court found is unconstitutional. So he said even though it's race neutral on its face, the school board had an unlawful intent to harm a particular racial group, and their plan indeed has a disparate impact on Asian Americans. If it's race neutral on its face, do courts usually dig into the intent or the suspected intent? Well, they they do. The On its face, the law the district court applied is the appropriate law, and the school board doesn't argue with the legal tests. What the school board argues with is that the district court got the facts wrong, um, and they said that when you look at the facts, Uh, There was no intent to harm any particular racial group. What the school board says they were trying to do, and they say all the findings that you can make, is that the school board was trying to gain a more diverse student body in the school, measured by geography, measured by English language learner status, measured by socioeconomic background, and measured by race. And so there, there are 
um, statements in the record that show that the school board was paying attention to race and how they could get greater racial diversity. But they say that's not the same thing as saying that the school board had an intent to harm any particular racial group or to have an adverse impact on any particular racial group. The group challenging this, what is it they want? Do they want the school just to admit students based on their tests, on on their GPA? How do they want the school to admit students? Well, they don't want the they don't want the admissions program that the school board enacted. How exactly they want it changed is not clear from the court record that I have seen. I don't know if they are asking to go back to the process exactly how it was before. I think that from the papers what they're saying is they want the school board to come up with some other process that is constitutional and to do that in the matter of of weeks and make the new choices in a way that does not harm um, Asian Americans to the same extent or that actually does not harm them at all. The Supreme Court turned this away. It was on what's called the shadow docket, an emergency request. Does it say anything about the issue itself, or could it just have turned it away because they'd argued that it was, you know, it was too late to make changes? Right. So what happened after the district court found that the plan was unconstitutional, and the district court actually enjoined the school board from using that admissions plan, Then the school board went to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals said, you know, hey, it's going to be way too hard for the school board to put a new plan in place in this amount of time. But the judges on the Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit also said, you know, we think that the district court might have gotten this wrong. District court shouldn't have given summary judgment. There are are disputed facts here. Um, and they may have the district court might have come to the wrong factual conclusions as to disparate impact and the school board's intent. So we're going to um, put a stay on the injunction. So then it went to the Supreme Court, and the student group is now saying, please vacate the stay so we have an injunction again so the old, so that the new plan won't go into effect. So on the one hand, it doesn't say anything at all because there is a very high standard, at least on paper, for the Supreme Court to reach down and and say, you know, we are going to, um, with no real briefing, with no real argument, we are going to undo what the Court of Appeals has done. It's a very high standard. One of the things that some lawyers are complaining about or raising some concerns about is that over the last you know, two or three years, or maybe five years, the court seems to have, in practice, loosened that standard, even though on paper it's the same. So on the one hand, you say, ah, there's nothing to be concerned about here. They didn't meet the very high standard. But the thing that is a little more concerning is that there were three justices who dissented from that decision. There's nothing written, so there's no opinion written, but Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, and Justice Gorsuch would have granted the application to vacate the stay, which means that from their perspective, they think that the court would take this case to review it, that there is irreparable harm being visited on these Asian American students by the new plan, and that there is a likelihood of success for the Asian American students. So they've already got three votes. Um, at the Supreme Court if they can get the case there or likely do. 
the, the Supreme Court would say, oh, well, this is, you know, a preliminary vote on something like this doesn't tell you exactly how we'll vote at the end of the day, but it usually does. So that's the most interesting thing. They've got three votes now if they were to make it to the Supreme Court. But isn't it surprising that they don't have the chief justice? No, I don't think it's surprising at all, June, that they don't have the chief justice on this because the chief has been more likely to stick to the court's real test of we are not going to give emergency relief on a case unless they meet this very high standard. And having to make the school district change their admissions policy in such a very short period of time, I think, is something that would usually, you know, weigh against doing that in a situation like this. So that's not a huge surprise. We've talked before about the what's coming next term at the Supreme Court, this showdown over affirmative action, if you will, in cases involving Harvard College and the University of North Carolina. Is this different because those programs explicitly take account of race as one factor among many, whereas this high school program uses race-neutral criteria? So is it different? Yes, June, you're right. It's different because of that. And the Supreme Court, though, has already staked out that things are different at K-12 schools rather than at schools of higher education. So whereas a court has clearly held in the precedent that's being challenged this coming term, that colleges and universities do have a compelling interest in a diverse student enrollment and that they may use race-conscious measures to forward those means as long as they're narrowly tailored. There's not really a holding um, from the Supreme Court for K-12 institutions the same way. And that's from a case from 2006 called Parents Involved in Community Schools versus Seattle. And that's, that's a case that the lawyers who are representing the plaintiffs in this Thomas Jefferson High School case, the Pacific Legal Foundation, the Pacific Legal Foundation is very interested in efforts to create more racially diverse student enrollments in K-12 schools. So they are on the lookout for cases that they can support to further their efforts in what they believe are improper uses of race even when the school boards say this is race neutral, we're not using race at all, as in this case, the Pacific Legal Foundation will sometimes say, oh, but these other things you're doing are, are a pretext for using race. And in fact, when the parents involved in community schools case was argued, um, the Pacific Legal Foundation and other amici were trying to push the court to not only say that that school boards can't use race-conscious measures. They were also trying to get the court to go so far as to say that any time that a school district talks about the racial components of their school, talks about trying to take any race-neutral steps to create a greater diversity in a school, that that was unconstitutional because the Constitution is supposed to be colorblind. And so governmental actors should not be talking about race at all. So I see that this is kind of a step towards them maybe trying to cement that idea as law. Thanks for your insights, Audrey. That's Audrey Anderson, who heads the higher education practice at Bass, Berry and Sims. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. 
At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.